Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. I bet you know, I bet you knew that already. Genesis chapter 1. Today our text is going to be found in verses 9 through 13. Genesis 1, 9 through 13. In the past few weeks, since beginning this particular study in the book of Genesis, we have touched upon a lot of issues dealing with creation, dealing with the fact that uh, the Scriptures teach us that uh, God created uh, all things, uh, speaking them into existence and the first day, and then from the second day on, beginning to shape and form all of these things into the creation that He's making with purpose. And, and we talked about that purpose, I'll refer, uh, refer to it in just a moment. But it's coming to grips with the very fact that we truly believe every word that God's uh, word is to us, uh, that the Scriptures are to us, especially the fact that if He says that a day is a 24-hour day and He created certain things on those particular days, then that's what He did. And uh, even though many in the scientific fields, especially the evolutionary sciences, are doing all they can to dispel these truths, uh, they cannot even match up to the very word in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And we'll see that as we continue to go on. There's many things said already before. If you just joined us, you're welcome to order the CDs from the previous uh, studies. And uh, if not, uh, catch us online and we'll have them there sometime soon. They come a little bit later, but they'll be there. Genesis 1 verse 9 says, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, And let the dry land appear, and it was so. Remember those words. And God said, and it was so. What is that saying? God commanded, and it was done. Verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. Remember that that good that he saw included also the second day. Verse 11. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. You know, when you study evolutionary philosophy, you, come, you can come to the realization quickly that the naturalists, those who say that nature is all that there is, there's no God, just nature. Uh, you come to the realization quickly that the naturalists who believe that they can come up with inventive explanations for the appearance of the universe and the origin of life that are free of miracles. Actually, they need quite a few miracles to hold up their storytelling. In fact, examples of miracles in evolutionary philosophy, as David Coppedge points out in an article that he wrote for Acts and Facts, a magazine of the Institute for Creation Research, include, and I quote, the sudden appearance of the universe without cause or explanation. Now remember, they have an explanation. There is no explanation. 
All right, let me go on. The sudden ex- appearance of the universe without cause or explanation, the origin of life, uh, the origin of sex, the origin of animal and plant body plans, and the origin of human consciousness, uh, end quote. He, he then points out a, a pretty bad example of appeal to miracle by naturalists in Nature magazine. And uh, here I quote uh, from Nature magazine. Uh, John Chambers of the Carnegie Institute was commenting on recent ideas about planet formation. Scientists have had a difficult time in their models getting pebble-sized rocks to grow into planetesimals. Uh, These planetesimals are bodies large enough to attract material by gravity, usually kilometers across. Now, new pressure, the article goes on to say, new pressure has been put on the models by the realization that small bodies spiral into the star on short time scales. Uh, in, in other words, in just a few hundred orbits. So here is their new idea. You might be sitting there thinking, what is he talking about? It's okay, hold on. Don't worry about it. I'll explain. So here is their new idea, the article goes on. The pebbles just leaped over the size barrier. And Chambers said... Objects must have grown very rapidly from sub-meter-sized pebbles into a hundred-kilometer-sized bodies, possibly in a single leap. In the same article, he remarked, dust grains coalesced into planetismals, objects of one to one hundred, uh, one to a hundred, uh, I'm sorry, one to a thousand kilometer in diameter through an unknown process. See, it doesn't matter a whole lot about what I was just telling you in the sense of planetismals and planet formation. Because you see, when you read about it, when you look into it, their models, when it talks about models, they don't go into some laboratory and throw some pebble up into something and see if it can spin fast enough to bring gravity to, into effect, to bring other materials to connect to it. That's, that's how they're thinking. See, they have to come up with some idea of how planets were formed. So this is all theory. And they spend hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, going through all of these theories to do this. Now here's the thing. Their models are computer simulations. And then when it tells us that uh, they have come up with this idea that, that the small bodies spiral into the star on short time scales, do you know what that short time scale is? Three to ten million years. None of us have lived that long. So how will we know that? None of us were there three million years ago to know if a star or a planet was created in that way. By the way, scientists have never seen a planet form. So it's all theory still. And by the way, John Chambers, who wrote in this article uh, in the Nature magazine, I read a little about his biography, he's one of the world leaders in the dynamics of terrestrial planet formation, Prior to his Carnegie Institute appointment, he was a research scientist at the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute in Mountain View, California. Extraterrestrial intelligence. Somebody else is out there. And this is the guy they're paying this money to. Do you understand where we're going with this? You see, the whole reason for bringing all of this up is that David Coppich, who wrote this article in in the Institute for Creation Research uh, magazine, he says, don't miracles involve unknown processes too? Did you hear some of the wording in 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 the quotes? Possibly a single leap, the pebbles just leaped over. And then he says, 
All of this happened with an unknown process. So David Coppedge comments, Don't miracles involve unknown processes too? Chambers undoubtedly believes that sufficient natural processes will be found in some future model, but that requires faith. That requires faith. So as we prepare to look at the third day of creation, it would be wise to review what we believe about God and His creation and why we believe His Word about the existence of all things from the beginning. And it's simply this. Because God declares it so. That's it. Because God declares it so. I mean, we have examined many contrasts and distinctions between divine creation and secular, humanistic, and atheistic evolutionary philosophy. And even the contrast between divine creation and theistic evolution. In other words, those people who say they believe in a God, but they believe that God had to use uh, evolution to create everything because it's a matter of time, you see, that they needed long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Remember that from the first meeting? All right? And, and so uh, we've come to realize that it takes faith to believe any position since no one was there to observe in the beginning. So when God says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and when He spoke light into existence, light be and light was, we believe that. We can believe it. And sometimes it's a whole lot easier to believe that than to believe some of this stuff that they're trying to do to disprove God just created everything the way He did. But while so much science is thrown in the direction of biblical creation account, God's Word stands authoritative in truth, scientifically as well as spiritually. In fact, we don't need science to prove anything the Scriptures declare as truth. Did you know that? We don't need science to prove anything the Scriptures declare as truth. For example, we don't need a scientist to crawl into the belly of a whale or a big large fish to measure around the insides to tell us that it's possible for a man to have spent time in a fish and therefore you can believe what it says in the book of Jonah because we've measured. I don't believe because a scientist measures the inside of a whale. I believe because God said so. And so, we've discovered no problem in believing that God created everything by the word of His power in six literal days. In the Hebrew, Yom, which always, 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 especially because it started here in the book of Genesis, means a literal 24-hour day. And that God took all the material created in that first day and he began to form his creation with purpose. We stated last time that the first three days of creation were foundational. On the first day, light was divided from darkness. Don't you think we need light today? So God knew we needed light, so he divided the light from the darkness. On the second day, a firmament divided the waters above from the waters below. It is this breathable atmosphere. Don't you think we needed a little air this morning to wake up? We got it. Why? Because God on the second day created this breathable atmosphere. And on the third day, which is what we're looking at today, the dry land was separated from the sea. And all of this was necessary to make the earth habitable. 
So today we look at the work that God did on the third 24-hour day of creation. And let's look at verses 9 and 10 of Genesis 1. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. Now please don't start uh, drawing pictures in your mind of the globe and of the uh, Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, the Arctic Ocean. Uh, you know, don't start drawing all of these pictures yet, okay? Because that's going to come later in the book of Genesis. This is just separating the water from the land. We don't know what it looked like. We, but we do know that there was land and there was water. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters is called he seas. And God saw that it was good. So as the third day began to dawn. Remember there was a light source. The earth was already spinning. That's why we know it was a 24 hour day. The earth was still uninhabited. Uninhabitable. And not really in its final form. Because its entire surface had, was still covered with water. But by the end of the day, there would not only be dry land, but also vegetation. Now, there are those who deny a literal six-day creation who would claim that such rapid changes cannot be possible. They would say, obviously, that land that is submerged under the sea in the morning would not normally be dry enough to support the planting of vegetation by evening. They would also argue that massive global structural changes, uh, which uh, science calls tectonics, uh, they argue that massive global structural changes that would be necessary for whole continents to appear from the sea would, would hardly seem reasonable or possible within the same 24-hour period that the plant life appears. Uh, now, that might seem a pretty persuasive argument if we were talking about natural processes. But it seems to me that when we began this study, we've been dealing with supernatural processes. God said, and it was so. The scriptures are describing here the creative work and the power of God with whom nothing is impossible. God can speak all things to existence. If in one very instant He can speak all things to existence, I would say He has a pretty good way of making land appear and be able to have vegetation on it immediately. Because with God, nothing is impossible. Now, as we said last week, if you believe what Jesus said, you can believe the creation story and the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. But if you believe Jesus, then believe this, because Jesus said in, in uh, Matthew 19:26, "With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible." In other words, I am not one who likes to believe in Mother Nature. I believe in Father God, God who is the Creator of all things. And by the way, don't forget that Jesus was there as well. Because people could argue that the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes was impossible. Because let's face it, it takes time for fish to be hatched. It takes time for fish to grow into maturity, to be caught and to be cooked and to be prepared for eating, right? You fishermen out there? If the laws of nature set parameters and boundaries and limits on the creative power of God, we might as well rule out miracles altogether. Remember Moses 
holding up his rod, the, the, the Red Sea divided, and million, over two million Jews went across, and then uh, people said, that's impossible. Can't believe that. You can believe it if you know that God's the one behind it. When all the people crossed and, and, and the Egyptians came across uh, there to, you know, to, to defeat them or to, you know, to, to destroy them, that the Lord covered them with the waters that were, had been divided, and that the Egyptian army was, 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 was taken and out at that moment in time, and the Jewish people on the other side began to rejoice that God delivered them. And people say, well, now listen, if, if they crossed at a certain place, and, and there was only about maybe you know, two feet of water, so what a great miracle that is. God destroyed the Egyptian army with only two feet of water. Because God can do whatever He wants to do. Are you understanding now? Nature's laws can place no limit on what God can do. Nature's laws can place no limit on what God can do. Genesis 18.14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. This is a time when the Lord is telling Abraham, you're going to have a son through Sarah. And Sarah's like, you know, she's old. And she starts laughing. <laughs> you know, God says, I'll get you. And he did. And Sarah had Isaac. You see, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I believe that nothing is too hard for God. So, it's a matter of faith, isn't it? And even more specifically, when the Lord God did speak, and it was so in reference to the seas being gathered and to the appearance of the dry land, a few scriptures attest to this great work as well. Uh, Psalm 18, verse 15. Now, this is primarily a psalm of David, and he's really speaking somewhat of himself in, 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 in what is going on here. But this is very key to our understanding of what took place on the third day. Psalm 18, verse 15, Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils, which indicates that even with God making a, a, a certain sound or, 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 or even breathing that God could bring into, into place all of the things that He already created. The earth and the seas separated so that you can see the distinction between land and sea. God, by the very breath of His nostrils, even by the very word that He says, can do that. That's how awesome God is. Why do we want to make God in our image? We can't do that. God made us in His image. We need to believe that. He alone is able to do these things. Psalm 104, verses 5-8. through Who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever? This is speaking directly to the third day. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded them. In other words, everything he did, he shaped himself. He did it by the word of his power. Proverbs 8.29, we were in Proverbs 8 last week. We were dealing with the wisdom of God that was also present at the creation. And there it says, when He gave to the sea His decree that the water should not pass His commandment when He appointed the foundations of the earth. And again, He, draw, he, he was drawing limits 
to the sea and to the, to the, to the land. Boundaries, you see. Isaiah 51, verse 15, But I am the Lord thy God, that divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is His name. God is declaring to us His power, His creative power. And then Jeremiah 5, 22, Fear ye not me, saith the Lord? Will ye not tremble at my presence? which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by the perpetual decree that it cannot pass it. And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. Have you ever wondered why it is that anywhere you go where there's an ocean, any part of the world, that right when you go up to the sea, you walk in sand? Because you see, God knows what He's doing. God has the power to speak these things into being. John MacArthur makes this observation. He says, it is nothing, or I should say, it is nonetheless interesting and ironic that secular physicists trying to explain the origin of the earth on purely scientific principles face a similar dilemma. Scientists who hold to the Big Bang Theory which we've spoken of before. Scientists who hold to the Big Bang Theory must explain how a universe full of matter appeared out of nowhere in an instant. According to an article in the Los Angeles Times, and I quote, the Big Bang is looking more supernatural all the time. About 20 years ago, now this was written 10 years ago, so now about 30 years ago, uh, the late Carl Sagan famously said that Big Bang science would eventually show that the universe was created without any creator. Since then, the picture has changed quite a bit. One reason why, in the years before his 1996 death, Sagan himself began to advocate science and religion studies. The leading contemporary development in Big Bang thinking is a theory called cosmic inflation, which holds that the entire universe popped out of a point with no content and no dimensions, essentially expanding instantaneously to cosmological size. Now being taught at Stanford, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and other top schools, this explanation of the beginning of the universe bears haunting similarity to the traditional theological notion of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Are they finally coming to settle on what the Bible has always said? That out of nothing God created the heaven and the earth. The article goes on to quote one of the world's foremost astronomers, Alan Sandage of the Observatories of the Carnegie Institute in Pasadena, California, who recently proposed that the Big Bang could only be understood as a miracle in which some higher force must have played a role. The force is with you. Scientists are beating their brains out to find some way to discount the truth of the Bible 
simply because they do not want to believe that God created the heaven and earth in six little literal days. Because if you believe that, then you have to believe. You have to believe everything else that the Bible says. They do not want to believe in sin. They do not want to believe that there is a sin problem. They do not want to be told what to do. Or that if you don't do what God commands, that you may live the rest of eternity separated from God in hell. They want to believe all of that stuff. So they do all they can to just believe something, anything, even if it sounds good. And you know what? We haven't even gotten to dinosaurs yet. There's a lot to say there too. And so let me ask this question. Is there a creature in any position then? Is there a creature in any position to question the Creator? I want you to consider the words of the Lord to Job, a righteous man. In Job 38 verse 3, God speaks to Job, finally. Job had laid before God many complaints. God, you know, he had been a righteous man and, and then he lost everything he had. Woe is me. Why, Lord, why? Finally, God breaks his silence. And he says to Job in Job 38, Gird up now thy loins. In other words, prepare yourself like a man. All right, Job, be a man. And then he says, For I will demand of thee and answer thou me. He says, I'll demand of you an answer and I want you to answer me now. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast has understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? How are things held together, in other words, Job? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Who set the foundations themselves? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you? Where were any of us? God is saying, listen. I created the heavens and the earth. I put everything in place. I hold all things together. Paul says Jesus holds all things together. All things consist because of Jesus Christ. Is there any creature that can be in a position to question that? Well, getting back to the third day, something amazing takes place. Life appears in creation. Life appears. Let's look at verse 11 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, 
the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind. Mark those times when you see that little phrase in your, in your Bibles. After his kind. And the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And there's another one back in verse 11 as well. After his kind. And the evening and the morning were the third day. A designation that now the day had come to, flourish, uh, to fullness. First of all, notice that the plants were created not as seeds, but as full-grown plants, each bearing seeds. Well, except for the grass, which reproduce by spores. Nonetheless, they were created as grass, as herbs, and as trees, yielding fruit. They, as well as the grass, were thus created as mature plants, Having the appearance of age. We've spoken of the appearance of things at creation. They have the appearance of age. You know what it teaches us? The chicken really did come before the egg. That's the lesson here. The chicken came before the egg. But that's for another day. Now if a day represented thousands or millions of years, as some people believe... That when we talk about the days in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, that really we're talking about eons of time uh, from, from a thousand years to a day, and a day is a thousand years, which by the way, that already contradicts itself. Uh, or millions of years, as it were, representing a day of time to bring about creation. If a day represented all of this length of time and the sun was not created till the fourth day, how could the plant survive? Do you want to see how smart God is? And, and I believe He's humorous here too. He creates the plants on the third day. And you think, well, how are they going to grow? We need photosynthesis. We need the sun's power, the light and all of that. Well, yeah, it's coming tomorrow. Do you understand? If a day was a thousand years, yeah, there'd be a problem. Oh, those plants would die. God knows what He's doing. And I love what God tells us here because it's so important. Inside each one of these plants is the ability to reproduce after its own kind. Thus, an apple tree will not produce an orange uh, tree or, or, or an apple tree seed will not produce an orange tree or a kernel of corn will not produce a redwood tree. And yes, the Bible is not a science book, but as you will see when it speaks about science, it is 100% correct. You see, God had organized certain chemical elements of the matter that He had created into tremendously complex systems. You see, you cannot get someone in the evolutionary scientific community to explain to you how we got all of these complex forms in science. In, 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 in the nuclear uh, uh, parts of life, you know, the, the molecules and the atoms. I mean, it, it, just, it, it, it just fascinates the whole mind. They just didn't happen. That's why you need billions of years to try to explain it. 
But God here, bringing together all these complex systems, each with an information system built into it, which specified the reproduction of others like itself. In other words, there is no suggestion here of any kind of evolution. And we'll deal with macroevolution and microevolution later, but, not, but, but the idea is we don't see it here. Variations uh, within one kind is allowed. For example, uh, if you want an apple, and you say, give me an apple, and you go into an apple store, not the computer thing, but uh, you go into a store that sells apples, and you say, may I have an apple, please? They're going to say, well, which kind would you like? Because we have red apples and delicious apples and Granny Smith apples and Macintosh apples. and You know, I read a, 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 a page on the internet that has about this much stuff as, as to the number of types of apples. But you know what? They're still apples. They're still apples. Oh boy, this apple tastes like a McDonald's cheeseburger. No. Tastes like an apple. Alright, unless you're you know, taste buds are all messed up. I don't know why. So variations within one kind is allowed, but something of one kind will never develop into something of another kind. You see, in the dog uh, arena, I was watching a dog show last night. Boy, wonderful TV. Well, you know what? You have a dachshund this big, a great Dane this big, but you know what? In that same uh, species, no dinosaur. See, you can't go from one to the other. Well, we're going to really have fun with dinosaurs because you know what? People today are saying, if, did you all see the movie Jurassic Park? I'm sure you saw it. It was 1993. That was a long time ago. Anyway, if you saw the movie, you realize there was, the idea was, look at the way the dinosaurs move. They look like a flock of birds. So dinosaurs became birds. Be careful of that bird in that cage in your house. Bite your finger off. Okay, I don't know where I got into that one. All right. But something of one kind will never develop into something of another kind. All right, we've got to finish because we've got to come to communion. Lastly, this is the beginning of life on planet Earth, directly created by God, not slowly evolving over millions of years. Now, some scientists now say life on Earth began when immense meteorites, get this one, immense meteorites carrying amino acids impacted earth at the time when the sun was cooler and the earth was a watery ball covered with ice up to a thousand feet thick. I'd like to see pictures. The idea is that a meteor hits the ice, breaks through and seeds the water underneath with the building blocks of life which assemble into organic soup. Folks, I'm just using their terminology. However the process was triggered, the scientists said life on earth began in a geological instant. Do you know what a geological instant is? About 10 million years or less. It takes more faith to believe this than to believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe we need to Remind scientists of Finagle's first law of scientific research. Anybody ever heard of Finagle's law of scientific research? The first law is, don't believe in miracles. Rely on them. It's a joke. This is where you laugh. 
You see, you're telling scientists, don't believe in miracles, rely on them. They have to rely on them. Why? Because their science is flawed. They won't believe the truth of how God created things. I'll I'll forgive you for not laughing. The fossil evidence also demonstrates life exploded into existence on earth instead of slowly evolving. We'll talk about that later. So the Lord God was preparing then the earth for habitation for humans and animals and plants would help to provide their food. He set forth the means to ensure the continuity, to ensure order and the stability of what he made. You know, God is very good at that. As a matter of fact, when he says that everything that he saw was good, that means it was perfect. We're talking about a perfect creation. It reveals to us the all-wise hand of an intelligent creator, and it solves the great challenging puzzle evolution cannot explain. How so much intricate design and functionality can be built into the universe. And so a second time, God said that His work was good. A perfect environment for life and the paradise for the creature God planned to make in His own image. By the way, it's the third time He said it was good. A perfect environment for life and the paradise for the creature God planned to make in His own image. And because of this, I mean, we still haven't even gotten to days 4, 5, and 6, but because of this, even up to this point, You know what we need to do? We need to rejoice in God. We need to praise God for being our creator. The Bible tells us that. Revelation chapter 4. Turn there, please. There's a song there. We we, we sang it last night. Actually, me and about three other people sang it because we couldn't find the words in the computer. You know, we're so dependent on the computer. Actually, we read the Bible. The, the, the words are in the Bible, King James Version. It says here in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, speaking of his eternality. And when, these, uh, when those beasts gave, uh, give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord. Listen to this song. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We are not to take creation by God for granted. We are to worship God. We are to praise God. We are to honor God. For He has created all things. And for thy pleasure, for His pleasure, they were, or they are and they were created. Man you see, must have vegetation to sustain his life upon earth. But the same is true spiritually. Man must have the food of God. That is, the bread of God. To sustain him while upon earth, if he wishes to live with God forever. I want to leave you with a few verses of Scripture in John chapter 6. All of them pretty much saying the same thing, but I want to emphasize why it says it so much. And to some extent it is tied to this third day of creation. 
We said on the third day, life began. Life, the grass, the herb yielding plants, that which would eventually become the food for man. Well, Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. And don't run through that little phrase too quickly because Jesus said, I am the bread of life, ego eimi. I am is the same word, the same name that is given by God to Moses in the wilderness where that burning bush that did not get consumed spoke right directly to Moses and said, when asked, what is your name? Who should I say? What God? What name of God? Should I give to Pharaoh? And he said, I am that I am. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. In John 6:47, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. In verse 57 and 58, as the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. We're coming to the table of communion this morning. Can we understand why? Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. The symbols before us, the bread and the cup, they're they're just symbols. They, They represent something of great importance to us. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. When he says that he's, it's about his flesh, what he said was, the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He gives it up to die. We are remembering the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ with the bread and the cup this morning. But as we come to the table, I want to ask you this question. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? I heard that phrase by Al Michaels back in 1980 when the U.S. hockey team played USSR. How many remember that? First time a bunch of young college kids beat a very highly professional hockey team. And with three or four seconds left on the clock, Al Michaels began to say, Do you believe in miracles? (laughs) Yes, I do. But not because of the uh, hockey teams. I believe in miracles because God, when he said in the beginning, he created all things by the word of his power. I believe that he can still do things for us today. Because God never changes. You should and you should know the one who has power to speak all things into existence. The one who loves you with an everlasting love. The Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. Do you know him? Do you know him? If you don't know him, you need to know him today. Take this bread. Take this cup. And get to know the one who died for you. And rose again.